Would you pray with me one more time as we uh, prepare to enter into God's word? God, we thank you that you have bridged the chasm that is between us. You have not left us to our own devices, but you sent a son to be with us and to show us your love for us. And because he is alive, he is our living hope, we know that your living word speaks to us each and every day. And so this morning, as we worship you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit. Help us to see a glimpse of the world that you have intended when you created it and made it good. Help us to get a glimpse of ourselves as a part of that good creation. And the life that you call us to live in Jesus is that good life, the abundant life that you invite us to find only in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into the sermon proper, I just want to uh, introduce myself. My name is Kurt. I'm also one of the pastors here. And uh, a special welcome to you if you are visiting with us this morning, both here in person and also online. We would love to have a chance to uh, meet you and get to know you better. Uh, so hang out after the service is over. Uh, fill out a Connect card on our website. Uh, let us know that you're here, and we'd love to reach out and connect with you in some way, whether that's going out for coffee or hanging out here at the church. Uh, we would just love to have an opportunity to meet you and greet you. Uh, also, a huge thank you to all of you who helped uh, prepare uh, and participated in our annual celebration and meeting last week. Uh, we got a lot of positive feedback that it was just a fun and a wonderful uh, morning together. And for those of you who uh, weren't there, uh, you should know that uh, you all as a congregation approved moving forward with a new funding campaign uh, to try and raise money to fund our vision for family ministry over the next three years. And uh, we're going to be talking more about that next week, and we'll have more details on what the campaign will entail and the goals that we'll be pursuing and how you can participate uh, but some people did ask last week, if you wanted to jump in and get started in supporting uh, that ministry in that direction, how can you do that? And so there is a drop-down menu that's now live on our online giving for a family ministry campaign. If you want to make a contribution there, you can. Uh, also, you can indicate family ministry on a, a check or a giving envelope, and that way we'll know that that's what you're intending that contribution to go for. But otherwise, we'll be having pledge cards and detailed information coming out starting next week, and we'll be walking through a process together. So there'll be plenty of time for you to get all the information that you need. We are uh, picking back up our series in Ecclesiastes called Chasing the Wind, which is a study in the futility and the fulfillment of life in this world. And as we pick up our series, we're in the middle of chapter 5. We'll be beginning in verse 8 today, where the teacher, Kohelet, or the Ecclesiastes, which is all uh, the same word, is still on his quest, observing life under the sun, to see what's good and what's worthwhile for human beings to do in the short and toil-filled days that we have to live life on this earth. And this next section ultimately goes through all of chapter 6, so it's a pretty large uh, section, and it's probably more ground than we can cover in detail today, so we won't hit every verse in this section. But I do want to be able to work through most of it and focus on the main points that I think the teacher is making, uh, to which really what we see here is a collection of wisdom statements that all kind of relate to the main points that he's trying to get us to see. As we've been learning from the teacher, in the end, he says that it is when we discover that life itself is a gift of God, 
that we find the true meaning and source of satisfaction and enjoyment, and that life lived apart from God is ultimately a life of futility and emptiness. And so the wise person recognizes that their human place in God's creation and the reality of the nature of the world we live in means that we are not the gods of our own lives, but that we were created to live in relationship with the Creator God and to find our true source of happiness and satisfaction in Him as His gift to us. So given these two divergent pathways that we can choose in life, the teacher has told us in the beginning of chapter 5 that we also have to be wise in how we approach life, our life of worship of God as well. Because if we're not careful, he says, we can be tempted to fall into the same trap of seeking profit and gain in our own wisdom and our own strength through our experience of religion and spirituality as well. That is, we can unwittingly attempt to use God for our own personal gain. We can treat church like it's a, a marketplace for gaining God's blessings, and if we do so, he says, we foolishly miss the point of what worship is really all about. And so now, in the middle of chapter 5, the teacher turns his focus back into the, the perspective of the world around us, where again, he sees that the injustice that comes from a world that's filled with people who are simply living for themselves first. In verse 8, he says, "'If you see the poor oppressed in a district and injustice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things.'" For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself, who's at the very top of the pyramid, profits from the fields. Don't be surprised, he says, that poverty exists and that people are poor in this world because there are so many takers in the world. There's not enough for everyone. In a self-centered world where everyone takes, those on the top don't really care who's at the bottom and how poor people are living because they've got theirs. Now, we should keep in mind that from a biblical perspective, originally God's law provided for the Israelites a system that was centered on the care and the protection of the people. It was designed without an endless hierarchy of government and an ever-expanding system of taxation and ways to, to glean from the people. Uh, but the people weren't satisfied with God's leadership in their life, and they looked at the nations around them, and they said, you know, we want to be like other people, and we want you to give us a king to rule over us. And so God warned them in 1 Samuel chapter 8, to be careful for what they wish for. And that with kings comes the conscription of their sons into the military and the requisitioning of their daughters to, to serve and the, the confiscation of crops and lands to give to, to nobles and officials along with the increase of taxes. But the teacher quickly goes on from here to say that this really isn't an issue of government or politics. It's not just an issue of kings and taxes and takers. The root issue, he says, is the love of money. In verse 10, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. This too is futility. 
As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? You know, a study a few years ago showed that among affluent people in America, 85% of them worry about money. And 40% of affluent people in America worry about money all the time. Now, that's people who have plenty of money. This is wealthy people in America. They worry about money. Well, at the same time, only 20% of wealthy people in America actually consider themselves wealthy. Isn't that an interesting dynamic? You see, the study's conclusion was that increasing wealth had a converse impact on people's view of wealth. That is, the more money people have, the more they think it takes to be considered rich. But the Bible does not say that money itself is the problem, right? It's the love of money that is the root of many evils, the Bible says. It's the love of money that never satisfies us and that never brings contentment in our life. In fact, it goes on to say that the love of money actually messes with your mind. In verse 12, he says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. They worry. They, they can't stop thinking about it. They're, they're, they're all concerned about what they're going to do if they don't have more or if they lose what they have. He goes on and says, I've seen a grievous evil or a miserable business under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. See, here the teacher is identifying that wealth, rather than always being considered a good in life, can actually harm the people who have it. The teacher's point here is that wealth, whether hoarded or lost, doesn't matter because the outcome is the same. It damages the person who's putting their trust in the wealth to be able to provide the happiness and the satisfaction of life in this world. When the love of money is the focus, because neither situation ultimately can bring satisfaction. You see, when the love of money, or as the the teacher has been telling us, the pursuit of finding gain in life is the driving force behind our thinking and our behaving, then the teacher says it ultimately contributes to the experience of darkness, frustration, pain, and anger that many people experience in life in this world. In verse 15, he says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil or a miserable business. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Do you know that most lottery winners confess that they lose many of their friendships to greed and envy? That in just three to five years after winning the lottery, they are more likely to declare bankruptcy than the rest of us? And that they're also statistically more likely to struggle with depression and divorce and suicide? Or how about professional athletes? 
I mean, these guys have made it, right? I mean, these guys are idols in our culture. Uh, what little kid doesn't want to grow up to be an NFL football player, an NBA basketball player, or a Major League Baseball player, right? These are heroes in our culture. A past Sports Illustrated article revealed that 78% of NFL players are either bankrupt or under serious financial stress within two years of retirement. Two years. In the NBA, 60% go bankrupt in five years after retirement. And yet we continue to carry in our minds these images of these the dreams of making it big in our culture. Right? It's the path to happiness if we can finally get there or arrive like some of these, these big-name people in our culture, then we'll finally maybe be happy. We'll finally be able to enjoy the life that God has given us. But the teacher wants to tell us that it's the love of money that never satisfies. Putting your hope in the things of this world to bring you satisfaction and happiness will always leave you feeling disappointed. It never brings contentment. In fact, it actually messes with your mind and it messes with your heart. But the teacher says that there's another way. There's another option that we can choose. There's a, a better way that God has intended. In verse 18, he says, This is what I observed, have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't you like to have that be your experience of life? They seldom reflect on the days of their life. They seldom worry about their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. They don't have time to worry because God fills them with the joy of living because they understand that all of life is a gift. At the heart of the teacher's conclusion is that the goodness of contentment comes only when we find satisfaction in the life that we already have because we see that life itself is a gift from God. Life is a gift, the Bible tells us, that is meant to be enjoyed. But when we can't enjoy the life we have, we will never be able to enjoy the life we think we want. Because enjoyment doesn't come from the things of this world. Enjoyment comes from the attitude of the heart. When life itself is seen as a gift from God, we begin to value and appreciate all the little things as well as the big things. And we understand that none of it comes from our own wisdom, our own strength, but it becomes as God's blessing. And so we're able to actually appreciate and enjoy the life that God has given us. And so for Kohelet, in his exploration, the teacher, he goes on and it begs the question, what do you do when you get exactly what you want? What do you do when, when you get the, the desires of your heart and you still feel empty? You followed your heart, you got what you wanted, you've achieved your dream, and yet something's still missing. Or what if you find yourself thinking, if I just had that one more thing, then I'd be happy. But you never arrive at getting that one thing. What do we, what do, we do with that? 
In chapter 6, he goes on to observe that a lot of people fall victim to this kind of thinking and they spend their days worrying about what they're going to do to get to that place where they can find that thing that somehow is going to be the missing puzzle piece that's going to bring satisfaction and contentment to their life. The problem is everyone's after what they can't have and the few that do have don't seem to be able to enjoy what God has given them. In verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless. This is futility and a grievous evil. See, as we look at our life here on earth, under the sun, The teacher sees some poor souls that that God has granted the ability to have it all, and yet they don't have the ability to enjoy it. They lack nothing that their hearts desire. They they have all the, the resources that they need to pursue the life that they want, but the truth is they lack the very things that count the most. Again, here, he wants us to focus on the problem is not with the stuff. The problem is with the human heart. People's hearts, he says, are desiring things that don't satisfy and suggesting that we can sometimes put too much faith in our hearts to lead us to the place that we need to go. When in reality, sometimes our heart's desire is really just our fleshly desire to be in control of our own lives. In the Bible, the flesh isn't just our body, it's, it's life apart from God. It's, it's the life that, that thinks that somehow we don't need God, that we can manage life on our own, that in our own wisdom, in our own strength, our hearts know what we want, and if we just fulfill the desires of our own hearts, then we're going to be happy. But sometimes our heart's desire is really just our fleshly nature leading us astray from the life that God has given us and intends us to, to find enjoyment and satisfaction in. Verse 3, he says, A man may have a hundred children, And live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he can't enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? That's pretty bleak. Right, But here, uh, this, this shocking statement, which again, over and over again, I think that the teacher is wanting to, to, to wake us up to the reality that he's trying to get us to see by using this extreme contrast, right? Between this living for thousands of years and not being able to enjoy your prosperity and a stillborn child that never comes into the world. If you can't learn to enjoy the life you have, he says, in many ways it would be better to simply have never been born. Because to live a life like that is to pursue the endless striving of gain, always to be dissatisfied and always to be left unhappy and always to find yourself disappointed. It's not the life that God intended for you or for me. 
In fact, it becomes more of a hellish kind of existence. It's a grievous evil, a miserable business. It's a wasted life. Because it's all just an exercise in futility and a chasing after the wind. In the end, he says, do not all go to the same place. In the end, doesn't everyone die and get buried? (laughs) Death is the great equalizer for all of us. And so the perspective that we get through watching the world through the teacher's eyes is meant to thoroughly convince us that life without God, that life without the eternal, that life under the sun in the few short days that we have to live it because we're born and then a short time later we die, apart from God, is a worthless life. There's no point in living it because it's always going to leave you dissatisfied and disappointed. You can have it all and have gained nothing of value or worth. The more we try to find our heart's fulfillment in the temporary things of this world, the teacher says, the less we're actually able to enjoy them. But the more we set our hearts on the things above and find our purpose and our fulfillment in the God who created us and has given us the life that we have as his gift to us, the easier it is to begin to enjoy the life that we have, to find enjoyment in the little things that God has given us, and to find genuine fulfillment in life, whether we have little or we have much. Isn't this exactly what Jesus recommends as a better plan for how to pursue life in this world? In Matthew 6, verse 19, he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, in other words, Jesus is helping us to see what the teacher was trying to to get the people of Israel to see thousands of years before, that, that with God, There are things that you and I can pursue in this life, things that we can grab onto that we won't lose. There are things that we can invest in that will produce an eternal reward, that will be banked up in heaven where we can never lose them, where everything that we have is gained, where all the temporary stuff in this life, if I don't have it, no big loss. And if I do have it, then I can enjoy it because God made everything beautiful in its time. And so we can begin to appreciate the beauty of what God has created and what God has gifted us with because we know it's all leading to the eternal reward of eternal life with Him. And when we get to heaven... What are the things that we can take with us? There is something we can take with us to heaven. Other people. When we get to heaven, we can find that there are other people who we can live with in eternity. And so we begin to see that the people that God has given us are not objects to be used for our own happiness and and for our own pleasure and for our own, uh, you know, progress in life. They are people to be loved, to, to be blessed by God, and so that we can share the good news of God's love for them so that we can be participating with Jesus in his mission to populate heaven 
with people from earth. See, win or lose, we can still enjoy the game because our hearts have been captured by another desire. Our hearts have been captured by an eternal vision from God that that this life is not all that there is. That there is so much more that we can experience and that we can attain, that we can participate in if we take the perspective that God has shared with us, not only in understanding our role as being created by Him, but being invited by Jesus as His disciples to participate in this mission of love to the lost in a hurting world. By contrast, the teacher says, living life for ourselves first and trying to find gain and happiness through our own strength is like having hunger pains that you can never satisfy. In this approach to life, the teacher says in verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What did the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless or futility in a chasing after wind. If you remember in the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul warns us about Christians too who who take on this mindset and they allow this worldly perspective to infiltrate their thinking. And what it does is it damages our faith and it damages our experience of Christianity and church because we too much put our focus on earthly things. And so here he's talking about in chapter 3 about Christian teachers who encourage us to pursue health and wealth in in earthly terms and to treat God like a magical genie in a bottle where Christianity is really all about becoming religious consumers in the marketplace of God's blessings. And so in verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have... Us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as often, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, the bottom line that Jesus told his disciples and he tells us and the apostle Paul encourages this truth to transform our thinking and to renew our minds is that your heart follows what you treasure. What do you treasure most this morning? What are you hoping for that you will experience or that you will attain or that you'll find that that will somehow bring meaning and satisfaction to your life? What are you longing for or hoping for or feel that you need today that might be preventing you from being able to simply enjoy the life that God has given you and the gift that he's already given you in his son, Jesus Christ? You see, the teacher's vision focuses us on life under the sun, where the treasures of this world never truly satisfy, and ultimately, in the end, it can all be taken away. But for those of us who are in Christ, 
who have taken an eternal perspective because of the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's conquered death and the grave and that we know that eternal life is awaiting us. We begin to recognize that the true treasure that God wants us to value and to pursue is a treasure that lives beyond the sun. Where it's secure and it's safe and you can never lose it. And when we know that, when we truly treasure the eternal faith and hope and love that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior who brings us back into relationship with the God who created us, then our hearts will begin to long for the things of God and the things of heaven and will push us to press on in the upward call of Christ Jesus our Lord. And in that process, when we set our minds on the things above, the Bible tells us that God will, will cease the worry and will fill us with gladness of heart. And then we begin to be able to invite others to experience the joy and the freedom that God gives us through setting us free from our need to be the gods of our own lives and to live life every day as the free gift of His love and His mercy in his grace in our lives. And surprisingly, when we say yes to Jesus and to take an eternal perspective on our lives, all the temporary stuff that we live with and that we experience becomes so much easier to enjoy or to simply let go of because it's not about the stuff. It's all about him. Amen? Let's pray. Holy God, we do thank you that you continue to pursue us and to shine the light of your love into our lives and into our world. Forgive us again for the ways that we get distracted from the gift of life that you've given us, thinking that somehow there's something more that we can attain or there's something more that we need that is going to ultimately bring happiness or satisfaction. And in this moment, God, Help us to rediscover the joy of living this gift of life that you've given us. And out of that joy, that, that gladness of heart that you fill us with through the presence of your Spirit, help it to overflow in goodness and in grace and in mercy to those around us. Because ultimately, God, what you've revealed to us in your Son, Jesus, there's nothing more that we need that you haven't already given us. And so we say thank you. Fill us with your love. Give us wisdom to let go of the things that will never satisfy and to fully invest our time, our talent, and our treasure in the eternal things of your kingdom that we know will ultimately bring us meaning and purpose and value in life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.